Hello everyone, welcome back to Mexi Clinical Pearls, where we talk through conditions, approaches and clinical situations commonly seen in ED and critical care that we think are important for medical students to know about. We hope you are well during this stressful time for us all. My name is Jack, one of the 4C students. And I'm Michael, one of the final year students. In light of recent events surrounding COVID-19, we think that it's appropriate and valuable to delve into the hallmark of COVID-19, respiratory failure. Respiratory failure is an important concept to understand. At a medical student level, it is sufficient to just have a general understanding of its classification, presentation, workup, and to have an approach to management. We'll definitely be going into more detail than you need to know, but we'll run through some take-home points at the end as to what we think is a central knowledge at our level. Let's start off with a case. You're an EDHMO in a metropolitan hospital. A 68-year-old man who has just arrived back from the US seven days ago self-presents to the ED with a three-day history of fever, shortness of breath, and cough. Upon arrival to Australia, he experienced fatigue and a sore throat. He has hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and COPD. The triage nurse has promptly put him in isolation for suspected COVID. When you see the patient, he is mildly tachycardic to kidneyic with a fever of 38.2. His oxygen saturation is 92% on 10 litres of oxygen via nasal prongs. Diffuse pulmonary infiltrates are seen on chest x-ray. His nasopharyngeal swab returns back positive for SARS-CoV-2 and it is arranged for him to be transported to the COVID ward for viral pneumonia. Whilst waiting to be transported, however, he becomes increasingly lethargic, tachypneic, diaphoretic, and desaturates to 80%. The nurse hits the emergency buzzer, and you come rushing in. There's a lot going on in that case, but we'll come back to it at the end of the podcast. You may be thinking to yourself, what on earth is going on with this patient? Why has this patient suddenly deteriorated? What even is acute respiratory distress syndrome? And what am I going to do to manage this patient? So Michael, before we answer all these pertinent questions, let's just answer this question. In a nutshell, what is respiratory failure? Sure, Jack. Normally in our blood, our partial pressure of oxygen is 80 to 100 millimetres of mercury and partial pressure of carbon dioxide is 35 to 45 millimetres of mercury. Respiratory failure is defined by having partial pressure of oxygen of less than 60 millimetres of mercury, or hypoxemia, or a partial pressure of carbon dioxide greater than 50 millimetres of mercury, or hypercapnia, despite being on supplemental oxygen. In other words, the patient has a low oxygen or high carbon dioxide in their bloodstream, even though they are receiving high amounts of oxygen to breathe with. Just a quick note, because you will often hear the terms hypoxia and hypoxemia being used. Hypoxemia is low oxygen in the blood. Hypoxia is low oxygen in tissues. So hypoxemia can eventually cause hypoxia. We typically think of hypoxemia not just as the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, but we interpret it in light of the inspired oxygen concentration that the patient is breathing in. This is called the FiO2. In general, we breathe in 21% FiO2 from the atmosphere around us. So, for example, if a patient has a partial pressure of oxygen of 75 millimetres of mercury when on 80% oxygen, that's considered poor, given the fact that most of us will sit at 80 to 100 millimetres of mercury while breathing in 21% oxygen. 
Sometimes we'll actually look at the ratio of the partial pressure of oxygen to the FiO2, called the PF ratio. As you can imagine, the lower the ratio, the more worried we get. Ideally, a normal person's partial pressure of oxygen is 105 millimetres of mercury while breathing in 21% FiO2, making the ideal PF ratio 500. We start to get worried in general if the PF ratio drops below 300. That's just a little side note to think about later on, but enough of the numbers, let's actually think about respiratory failure. Respiratory failure is typically split into type 1 and type 2. If you listen to our podcast on RSI, you will remember that we talked about this briefly. Type 1 is defined by a patient being hypoxemic without hypercapnia. Type 2 is defined by a patient being hypoxemic with hypercapnia. Now, it might not seem too helpful to say this, but once we get into the physiology and talk through some examples, things will make a lot more sense. The reason why we want to differentiate whether or not someone's hypoxemia is a result of type 1 or type 2 respiratory failure is because it helps us to narrow down the cause and provide the best management for them. The way we manage type 1 and type 2 can be quite different. So Jack, why don't you start us off by taking us through type 1 respiratory failure? So the way to think about type 1 respiratory failure is it being caused by a ventilation perfusion mismatch. A simplistic way to conceptualise it is that you get good oxygenation into the lungs, but once it gets down to the alveolar level, there is poor oxygen exchange, meaning that there is less oxygen that's actually getting into your bloodstream. This can eventually give you hypoxemia if the ventilation perfusion mismatch is significant enough. The reason why patients won't get hypercapnic is because carbon dioxide diffuses across the alveolar capillary membrane much more readily than oxygen does, meaning that while oxygen can't get in very well, carbon dioxide can still get out. If you think about it on an alveolar level, the problem with ventilation perfusion mismatch can be that there is something inside the alveoli like fluid or blood, or that there is a parenchymal issue, like COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, or there is something wrong with blood passing through the alveoli to become oxygenated, like a PE or pulmonary hypertension. So, if a patient has type 1 respiratory failure, the list of differentials you will have will be very long, but the red flags are PE, pneumothorax, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and pulmonary hemorrhage. Acute respiratory distress syndrome is a type of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, but we'll talk about this briefly in more depth at the end of the episode. Other serious conditions to think about include acute asthma, COPD, pneumonia, and other causes of pulmonary edema, like you might find in decompensated heart failure or from high altitude. And of course, there are also the chronic conditions like pulmonary fibrosis or pulmonary hypertension. So to sum up type 1 respiratory failure, remember, hypoxemia without hypercapnia, usually caused by VQ mismatch. That's right. But how is type 2 respiratory failure different? Type 2 respiratory failure is hypoxemia with hypercapnia. To conceptualise this well, you need to understand that how much you breathe per minute is directly linked to carbon dioxide levels in the bloodstream. Remember that carbon dioxide diffuses very readily across the alveolar capillary membrane. So if you breathe faster or breathe deeper, you will essentially breathe out the carbon dioxide from your bloodstream. To put it in fancy terms, 
minute ventilation is inversely proportional to partial pressure of carbon dioxide. So all the causes of alveolar hypoventilation are the potential causes of type 2 respiratory failure. Let's think about it from your head to your chest. Starting with the CNS, or central nervous system, a reduced respiratory drive can be caused by drugs like opiates, sedatives, and anaesthetic agents. It can also be caused by brainstem lesions like a stroke, tumour, or from trauma. Now moving down the pathway and thinking about the nerve and muscle disorders, things like cervical cord lesions, diaphragmatic paralysis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, myasthenia gravis, and polio can all cause hyperventilation and thus type 2 respiratory failure. Now move to the actual lung and chest itself. There are a few things that can limit lung expansion, like a pneumothorax, pleural effusion, or hemothorax, or even things to do with the thoracic wall, like flail chest or kyphoscoliosis. Finally, some of the conditions that cause type 1 respiratory failure can actually lead to type 2 respiratory failure. This is a very bad sign, because the mechanism of how this works is that the patients start to get respiratory exhaustion. You can see this in very severe asthma, COPD, and pneumonia. These types of respiratory failure are sometimes termed mixed respiratory failure. Now, different people have different ways of learning. I like to think about it systematically down the anatomical pathway, whereas Jack likes to categorize type 2 respiratory failure into three groups, won't breathe, can't breathe, and can't breathe enough. Patients who won't breathe are those with the decreased respiratory drive. Patients who can't breathe are those who are physically unable to due to a neuromuscular, chest wall, or pleural disorder. Patients who can't breathe enough are those who have gas exchange issues, so those who will typically present with a mixed respiratory failure. Use whatever method helps you to remember the causes. Now, as future doctors, we need to be able to recognise patients with respiratory failure. Jack, do you think you could take us through some presentations and complications of respiratory failure? Absolutely. Now, how patients with respiratory failure initially present will obviously differ based on the etiology of their presentation. The main things you might observe in a patient lying in bed in front of you are dyspnea and a decreased oxygen saturation. Late signs of hypoxia include cyanosis, confusion, and drowsiness. Outside of this, you can expect quite a spectrum. For instance, patients with pneumonia will likely present with tachypnea, while patients with alcohol or benzodiazepine overdose may present with respiratory depression and drowsiness. Other things in history or examination will be valuable clues to discovering the etiology. Do they have a wheeze? In which case you would consider asthma. Do they have chest pain with hemoptysis? In which case you would consider a PE. In general, type 1 respiratory failure patients will often be more agitated and appear to struggle more than patients in type 2 respiratory failure. However, hypercapnia is often insidious, and even though patients with severe hypercapnia will often appear comfortable, they will likely be developing a severe respiratory acidosis. Unless the patient has a limited pulmonary reserve, hypercapnia is rarely symptomatic. By the time someone has respiratory failure, you should also have a quick think about complications they may develop. These might not only involve the respiratory system, but can also lead to cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, renal and metabolic changes. Respiratory failure itself can cause PEs and pulmonary fibrosis. 
as the metabolic demands of the heart and diaphragm are not met and myocardial and diaphragmatic contractility decrease. You may see decompensated heart failure, arrhythmias, AMIs, or cardiorespiratory arrest. Patients may also develop GI bleeds, renal failure, and consequent electrolyte and acid-based disturbances, but a lot of the time, it's because they're just systemically very unwell. That's all we have time for this podcast. We've covered a lot today. So what can we take home from today's podcast in regards to respiratory failure? First of all, respiratory failure can be caused by a range of conditions which need to be identified early on. Second of all, type 1 respiratory failure is hypoxemia despite supplemental oxygen and is typically due to a ventilation perfusion mismatch. Thirdly, type 2 respiratory failure is hypoxemia with hypercapnia despite supplemental oxygen and is typically due to alveolar hypoventilation. Lastly, type 2 is often more insidious and dangerous than type 1, but both can cause widespread complications. Tune in next week where we'll be discussing how to work up a patient with respiratory failure and an approach to management. Thanks for listening.